诗篇三十二章一至五，大卫的训诲诗：得赦免其过、遮盖其罪的，这人是有福的；凡心里没有诡诈、耶和华不算有罪的，这人是有福的。我闭口不认罪的时候，因终日哀哼而骨头枯干；黑夜白日，你的手在我身上沉重。我的精液耗尽，如同夏天的，嗯，干旱。我向你陈明我的罪，不隐瞒我的罪。我说，我要向耶和华承认我的过犯，你就赦免我的罪恶。Today's scripture reading is from Psalm 32:1-5. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them, and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. All, for day and night, your hand was heavy on me; my strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, "I will confess my transgressions to the Lord," and you forgave the guilt of my sin. This is the word of the Lord for us. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. It is good to see more of you here, and it's very good to see you, new people. I hope you stay. My wife and I came about three years ago, and I'm thinking maybe this year I will climb the Capital Community Church longevity status enough that I'll be able to tell remember when stories. So, you people, just keep on coming. And、uh, and for the rest of you that、uh, are coming on back, straggling in,、uh, welcome. It is good to be here.、Uh, my name is Craig Bruninger, and、uh, my wife and I,、uh, Julie, came. I mentioned three years ago.、Um, she, out of a history of、uh, mothering and nursing at a pediatric hospital, me, out of a history of fathering. And、uh, teaching in、uh, public schools, private schools, and in churches, and here we are. One of the things, reasons why I enjoyed working with young people, I spent most of my time with high schoolers and, and college people, is is they just have an attitude. Now you all have an attitude too, but when you get an adult, you learn how to suppress it, and so you really aren't very fun. It's. It, it. I just find older teenagers, especially, to be marvelously engaging, and and I I just long for the moment and and try to bait and entice students that for that first one who's going to say, I have a question or I don't think that's right, and and I just love that because I've always been a man myself. Really, more attracted to questions than answers, and perhaps the skeptic type, which is probably why I taught science and math, among other things. I, I like question. My life is full of questions. One of the things I noticed, whether it was in a Christian school setting or a public school setting, there seems to be a common mindset that somehow religious things are different than real things. Bible history is different than real history. 
And, and reading the Bible is different and, you know, just issues of reliability and everything else. It's just a different category than like reading a history book and asking, is this an accurate history book or whatever else? This division that somehow religious stuff is in a different category, certainly in my home country, United States, has been greatly encouraged for decades. Sure, there's a difference. We got truth, we got knowledge, we got hard facts, we got real life here, and then we have religious stuff over here in a completely different category. Somehow, out of that also comes the concept that really when it comes to questions, we got religious questions, and then we have normal questions, real life questions. And those of us who grew up in a church and were told we should share our faith, it's just, I just found it very awkward to say, hey, do you mind going with me out of real life for a little while so I could ask you religious questions? But as I got older, I realized, you know what? Questions are not issues of the category they're in. Questions are issues out of the heart and mind they come from. And all humans share questions. In fact, there's an amazing number that we all share in common. Today I want to talk about a very common question. It's going to be found in Mark 10. You might want to turn to that in your Bibles. Familiar story to many of you. We have this younger man who happens to be wealthy, and he's coming to Jesus and he's saying, you know, I've been thinking. Um, I'm, I'm concerned. Am I good enough? Am, am I doing okay? Is, is life okay? <clears throat> am I doing good enough in God's eyes? I think I am, but I'm not sure and I'm concerned, so I really need some advice and tell me what to do. And you know what? I think that's a question for every human. So how are you doing today? Implicit underneath, even though we won't go there on the surface, is, so how are you really doing? Are you doing okay? And somewhere in us, deep down, we resonate with that question. I think I'm doing okay. I hope I'm doing okay. What context do you mean? I think my finances are okay. I think my health is okay. I think my marriage is okay. I think my prospects for marriage are okay. And, and, but I'm not sure, and I would love to know. And so this question in Mark 10 is a common question personalized to this guy. Now, I would encourage you to get some paper and pen out um, for this reason. Um, I'm going to give you homework at the end of today. Now, I certainly realize that extending the opportunity to do homework is almost a waste of breath unless what? It's going to be on the test. Okay, so two weeks from today, I'm back here. And if you're there, you're getting a test. I'm sending you with homework, and there will be an actual test two weeks from today. So take note of that. A good day to miss. <laughs> but you will need a note. Let me read through Mark chapter 10, verses 17 to 27. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? 
Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. And Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and then come and follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to the disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. So here we have a very common question of a successful man who was a good man. He has a good reputation. He was hardworking. He was relatively wealthy. He was doing a good job with his life. He was doing a good job with religious life following these commandments. But something inside of him said, is this enough? Is this enough? I think we all have that something inside. It pops up at different times in different places. So here he is with this question, and Jesus responds to him by saying, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And then Jesus goes on, you know the commandments, don't do this and this and this, which he knew full well. Kind of an odd statement to me. The man asked what he should do. Jesus told him what he should do later on. But he took issue with the man saying, good teacher, tell me. And Jesus said, why do you call me good? Only God is good. What was Jesus' point there? I'm intrigued. So, since we want to do rigorous Bible study, we have to stop at this point. And we got to figure out what's going on when Jesus makes this statement, whoa, only God is good. Now turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. It frequently is very helpful to go back to the first occurrence of something. And the first occurrence of sin by a human we find in Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve were not sinners. They had not disobeyed God. They had no bad habits. They had no bad environment. They had nothing bad about them to attract them to sin. You and I have a whole host of things that make us suckers for different kinds of sins. They didn't. So, when I look at Adam and Eve, if you are the serpent and you want to take them down, you're going to have to give your best game on that one. Satan doesn't need to give his best game to take me down. There's a whole host of things I can be a sucker for. That's why keep that in mind as we look at how did this unfold as Satan was speaking with them. Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of the tree in the garden? 
And the woman said, we may eat of the fruit of the tree in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And then they heard the sound of the Lord. God walking in the garden of the cool of the day. The man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees in the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And Adam said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And God said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And Adam said, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. So here we have an account of a sin. Here we have the account of Adam and Eve making a decision to disobey God for the very first time. If you wanted to tempt Adam and Eve... It was going to have to be a big one. And I believe whatever would attract them to risk disobeying God probably will resonate pretty deeply in my heart and yours as well. In other words, I think we had better be very, very aware of what it was that attracted them to say no to God. Satan came to Eve and said, did God actually say? This is the first step. Questioning whether or not we can really know what God has said. For those of you who like this kind of thing, this would be an epistemological assault. You're coming up to a person and saying, yeah, translate that one in Chinese. I'm sorry, I meant to write that word down for you. That's all right, forget that word. It's the basic question of what's the basis of truth? How do you know what you know? That's all the question is. How do you know what you know? And in our society, much of it today, they're questioning whether we can really know anything. It's not that we argue truth. The question is, no one can really know truth. All we know are stories and meta-narratives and constructs, and you make yours and I make mine, and we interact together, but no one knows and no one can know. It's not new. Satan started that. Did, did God really say this? And, of course, he misquoted God, that you can't eat of the trees of anything. And she said, no, that was an easy question. That was the easy one. She said, no, no, we can eat it all except this one, and we can't even touch it. We, we actually don't know if God told her you couldn't touch it. That may have been her add-on. Either way, that was her comment. And then Satan says, you will not surely die. From questioning God and God's word, he then went to directly contradicting God. You will not die. God is 
wrong. If she believed and held on to the fact that God could not be wrong, then that would have been the end of the discussion. But something in her allowed the discussion to carry on. And the serpent continues, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Here the enemy is appealing to the desire in us to be the ones who determine what right and wrong is. You know, when you think if you could have any power in the world, or what would you like? I'd like money, I'd like riches, I'd like whatever. But you see, the problem is you got this pesky little ethical morality part in all of you. And you could be the richest, most powerful person in the world, but you could still be miserable inside because, you know, the way I got my money is wrong, the way I'm spending my money is wrong, and that could just ruin it for you. So if you could be the one to truly define what good is, that would be in some ways almost the ultimate power. And as always with Satan and his lies, there's a lot of truth in those. And so Satan says, you know what? You could be like God because you could be the one to make decisions. That's good, that's good, that's not. That intrigued Eve. Satan actually was questioning whether God can be trusted to do the good thing for Adam and Eve. Can you really trust God that not eating of that tree is best for you? That was his appeal. I don't know if I could trust God. You're right. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, a delight to the eyes, was to be desired to make one wise. She's, I guess we could say maybe she's doing a little thinking in her homework. So she looked at this fruit on this tree, which we already know from Genesis 1 and 2 that the fruit of that tree was good because everything God made was good. So we know the fruit of the tree was good. She looked at it. It was a delightfully appealing visual sight. It had a beauty that was attractive to it. It had a reasonable anticipation, this is going to taste good in and of itself. No warning signs, no warning labels, no worms, no nothing. She did her own assessment. Okay, nothing wrong with that one. I don't think it'll hurt me physically. I wonder what it would be like for me to be the one to decide what's good for me. You know, I I would like that, kind of exciting. What if I'm the one who says, yeah, this is what's good for me. It was to be desired to make one wise. Nothing intrinsically wrong with the fruit. You see, already I I hope our ears or maybe there's a vague thought in the background. 
Is the morality that you practice or that you teach to your children or to others based on the fact of the intrinsic wrongness of what shouldn't happen? Now, there is intrinsic badness to certain things. There are certain kind of foods and poisons and chemicals that are intrinsically bad. And you shouldn't drink this because it is poison and it will hurt you. But if that's all we tell our children, if that's all we tell ourselves, well, you know, I don't know if God wants you to do, well, let's think about this. Oh, because you might do this. And you think about it and you say, well, there's a lot of people that practice this and they never do that. And, and you're right. So we're thinking about it. The issue isn't the intrinsic wrongness or evilness of anything. Because, again, in a side issue, deeper philosophical discussion, really, evil does not exist in and of itself anyway. It only exists as a perversion of what is good. So, so there is going to be some goodness in everything. So she took of the fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband. She acted on her internal assessment. She said, all right. I assess the fruit is good, I assess me being the one to decide is an appropriate thing, and I will eat it. And Adam made his own assessment. Probably an added component to him was the community assessment. Well, we're together in this. I'm sticking with her. Plus that little comfort assessment of community. It says, well, you know, if we're getting in trouble, I'm not the only one. So for whatever his reasons, Adam ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew they were naked. Now, they already cognitively knew they were naked. They already could see, you don't have clothes on, I don't have clothes on. Of course, they didn't even know what clothes were. So we know they knew that here already. But something happened down here that made them say, Whoa, I'm naked. And I got to cover up. You see, now that they made a decision to be the one to determine right and wrong and good and bad, now that they took that mantle on themselves, they had to carry that wherever they go. Before, what they looked like, their physical size, shape, and everything, it didn't matter. Because God had said, I made you, and you're very good. And they could just bask in that statement by God. But now they took away from God his unique authority to define what good and bad was, right and wrong, and now that they had it, they were, they were burdened with this responsibility, okay, now I'm the one that has to decide. And now they looked at their body and they had to say, wow, is this good or bad? And as we all know, there's a lot of reasons why we may look at ourselves and our behavior and say, oh, I don't know, this is kind of embarrassing, I don't know if I measure up. That's what they took upon themselves. 
the responsibility to be the one to judge whether they measured up or not, and all of a sudden they looked at each other and said, oh, do you measure up? Do I measure up? And they weren't too sure if they were really good anymore. And they already had moved away from trusting God's assessment. You see, God had already proclaimed them very good, and that was enough for them until now. I think we can get a taste of this when we look at children. In fact, maybe when we speak of the innocence of a little child, I think we cover this. I have a son who's very laid back and quiet, like I am, would prefer not to be the center of attention. But when he was three, he stood on the hearth, and he got a carrot, and he would sing and dance for everybody. I, he's a teacher now, so he is learning how to sing and dance. But uh, that stopped. When does that stop? Well, when the kid realizes people are judging me out there. Whoa. Will I be good enough? I think I am. I'm, I'm not. I, I don't know. I think I am. But then they go to a friend's party, and they like have a real microphone and a real voice, and you're ready, and then all of a sudden you like feel real embarrassed, and you say, now I don't measure up. That is your world, and that is my world. Adam and Eve chose to take that and gifted it to all of us. And now all of us have this intrinsic part of us that wants to be the one to decide what good is. And now that we have this responsibility, if we keep it, if we don't give it up, then I enter a world of comparisons and judgments and assessments and struggles, a world of prejudices, a world of fear, and ultimately a world of hiddenness. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloth. They needed to cover up. They realized, whoa, I am not sure how good I am and look and everything else. I, I just need to cover this up. We still do that today. They covered up. This was a cover-up, the first cover-up. In fact, probably that's where the term got so literally. They covered up. And again, we can learn a lot about ourselves by looking at Adam and Eve. So I'm highly suspicious that you and I practice the same kind of covering up. They wanted to hide questionable things. Well, what do we do for cover-ups? Well, one thing we do is we wear masks. Hey, Craig, how you doing? Hi, hi, I'm fine. Yeah, just fine. I'm fine. You fine? I'm fine. Yeah. Oh, yeah, well, I, I know I did poor on the test, but, ha, you know, that's that teacher's fault. Who cares? And it doesn't matter anyway. I'm not going to call. I'm fine. You're fine. I'm fine. We're all fine. And Craig's fine. And if you don't know me too well, you buy the mask. Actually, you really want the mask to be true, don't you? Because if I'm not fine, that kind of rains on your parade and I become a burden to you. So we got this little, shall we say, community of mutual extortion 
you know, that, you know, please be fine, because if you're not fine, you ruin my day, and then I feel responsible to do something. So we may hide behind the mask of fineness, so no one really knows, but we have a lot of other masks, and talents prevent me from going too far. I'll just pick one, mainly it's red. I'm angry. I'm an angry person. Why am I an angry person? Well, in part because I suffer injustice. Life's not fair. I'm entitled to more. Those people got that. It isn't fair. But also, angry people hide from people because people don't like to be around angry people. And when I'm so uncertain, there's another way you can hide. There's another covering, is anger. And we can talk about quietness. We can talk about withdrawal. They made used fig leaves to cover up. They also hid themselves from the presence of God. They did not want to submit themselves to the judgment and assessment of God. Would not be surprised if there are certain people not here today because after the week they had, the last thing they wanted was to go hear God talk because they knew somehow it would not be supportive of them. And so they don't come to church. They don't want to discuss anything. They avoid relationships. They don't want to go to your group anymore because, like, you guys start, like, to uncover hidden things, and it's really uncomfortable, and I just don't want to go there myself. So they physically hid themselves. But the Lord God called to the man and said, Adam, where are you? Oh, actually, God knew where he was, okay? This was not a question that was a cognitive one that God was missing out on information. God wanted Adam to know that God wanted Adam. God wanted to give Adam a chance to say, here I am. That's the call that's present today to every one of you. For those of you who are not believers, there's a call out there and God says, where are you? I sent my son to earth. He preached the word. He died for your sins. He rose again. I gave you my word. I gave you the message. And that call is going out through all the world. And those of us who are believers, it is our responsibility to take that. Where God says, where are you? I care. I'm looking for you. Adam had a choice. He could have cowered behind a tree and hoped God never found him, but instead he said, here I am. He probably realized he had no other options. God is the kind of God who goes out looking for us. Adam said, well, I heard the sound, you were in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Well, yeah, of course he hid himself. Because he knew in his new role, Adam did, as being the judgment and assessor, he looked at himself and quite honestly said, I am bad, I have failed, I am not good. God said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree that I commanded you not to eat? Again, God is inviting them to acknowledge the truth. We as parents frequently do that. We know the truth, we have proof. We got the video cam of what our son did, but we say, what happened? Do you want to tell me about it? It's 
an opportunity for a person to take off a mask of hiddenness and show themselves for who they are, which, by the way, is what allows a person to be loved. You see, as long as I wear my happy mask, I cannot receive your love. Because when you say, oh, Craig, I really love Craig, you're loving the mask. I know that. You're not loving me. Hiding prevents us from receiving love. Even when 10 out of 10 observers would testify, these people really do love you, and, and, and we say inside, they can't love me because they don't know the real me. You see, when we hide, we insulate ourselves from receiving the love of people even when it's there. We will blame them. We will blame the system. We will blame the world. But actually, it is us. Adam said, well, the woman that you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit and I ate. Well, now hiding behind excuses. Another way to hide, excuses. Blaming others. Well, it's, it's really their fault. Now, I find God's response unnatural as far as I'm concerned. All right, I would have had a snide remark to say to Adam right there, but he went with it. He just went with it. He honored their flow of logic so they could see themselves that it just kind of flopped and died. I think sometimes we as parents and especially as teachers, we, we just correct something way too quickly rather than allowing it to take its natural course. Since the Olympics are happening, I'm required to give an Olympic illustration. Um, and, and I know nothing about these sports, but it just seems that in the sport of judo, and I think other probably Eastern martial arts, that, or, or let me just say, a, a typical old American Western is the, he, the guy stands there and he says, Come on, I'm not budging. Run with me all you want, and I'm not going to budge. And then he smacks them and hits them and so on. Actually, the more Eastern flavor is, run at me all you want, and I'm not going to stop you. I'm not going to stop your argument. I'm going to deflect it with just a little question and allow you to run right by me and run into the wall of reality. So just a little free tip. Sometimes it's just best to not give the answer to prove they're wrong, but to give them two more questions to run with so they can discover it for themselves and start learning the basic skills of critical thinking. But therein lies another story. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you've done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Eve is blaming the serpent. The serpent deceived me. Deceit is an interesting situation. I could say, hey, in what areas are you being deceived today? And you probably have some tentative answers, you might say. Well, you know, I'm being deceived by materialism and by the lure of riches. And, but I might, I might want to say this. You don't know the areas you're being deceived in because you're being deceived. If you say, I'm being deceived by materialism and the lure of riches, I don't think you're being deceived. I think you're being rebellious. I think sometimes we try to hide behind a curtain of deception when actually, you know, we're just making these choices. 
And she said, well, I was deceived, and he took me down the road, and God went ahead, and we're not going to go there, and then talk to the serpent, who, by the way, who was the only one who did not shift the blame, all right? He took it quite proudly, I'm sure, as an honor to him. So, we have a problem, the problem of sin. In this problem of sin, Genesis 3 is a chapter of sin, we have one component of sin, and, and I'm just doing a very loose, not a thorough look at this at all. We have one component, which is attitude. An interest and a willingness to disobey God. Do you have a willingness to disobey God? What would that look like? I don't know, that's kind of part of your homework assignment. Do you live with an interest and a willingness to disobey God in a certain area of your life? I don't know, in wherever you're from, maybe traffic speeds. Yeah, you're willing to disobey there. Maybe it's your income tax, declaring income. Maybe you're willing to go places. Starts with that kind of attitude. Next, of course, it turns into an action. Attitudes will result in actions, and they disobeyed God. We disobeyed God. They acted on their decision to distrust God. Well, after we sin, there's consequences. Consequences, what happens? Well, frequently, there might be a little pleasure. A short one, but just a little pleasure, contentment, comfort in your sin. But that eventually will turn into shame. And another consequence was this issue of death, which Adam and Eve experienced. Not only was there now a clock ticking on their physical bodies, but they suffered the death of a close relationship with God. It died. It was gone. They no longer had it. They suffered the death of being able to live in the garden. They suffered the consequence of if not death, certainly major problems relationally because now we all need to hide from each other. The problem of sin gives a response, which is where we enter in. So what is your response to this problem of sin? Do you avoid the whole thing? Do you just try to cover it up and go on? Do you blame others? What is your common response when you sin. We have the writer of Psalm 32, which tells you his story into sin and his response and how well it worked. It would be a commentary on Adam and Eve. Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groanings all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I floated the idea past Julie of turning the air conditioner off so you could start to feel the heat of summer. But I don't think you need to feel it here to know what that's like. Literally, at my age and shape, 
I go outside and I'm draining right there. If I just stand, it is draining away. This is what he's describing. It just is draining away because it was hidden. He was hiding it. He was covering it up. Then I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord. You forgave the iniquity of my sin. So, the problem of sin, I would like to redefine that. I would like to say, I, I think we're missing the mark to talk about sin. And you say, so you talked an awful lot about sin to be missing the mark. And I said, well, maybe that's part of our problem when we talk about sin. I don't want to call it the problem of sin. What I'd like to call it is a problem, which is sin, not the problem. You see, when you're told what the problem is, if you're sincere about it, you focus on that problem. Sin is your problem. Okay, okay, okay. I will work hard and try harder to sin less. But I'm focusing on sin if that's the problem. That's a problem. That's a symptom of another one. And maybe one of the reasons in your struggles with sin in your life is you're focusing on that sin as though that's your problem and you need to do it less and you need to stop it when actually that's just a problem. It wouldn't be what I call is the problem. And I would say the problem is not trusting God's goodness. What I'm saying, the implications, and, and we'll develop this a little more in two weeks. The implications are the real core of your issue is not this chronic sin that is consuming you. The real core has to do with your view of God. Is God good or not? You see, every time you sin, every time you disobey, you are making a statement. I know what God says. Eve knew what God said. But I don't trust God to be good. So I will say, you know what this situation calls for? Me to stand up for my rights and be angry and yell at this person. That's what it calls for. I know God said not to, but I know. I oh, know, I look at that. I yelled and, and I was bad, or I drank too much again, or I watched this on the television again. What, whatever that is, that's a symptom of a deeper relational issue and a deeper question, which is is God good or not? Who gets to define good? There's always a battle over who gets to make definitions. The current, who gets to define identity? Who gets to define a person's identity? Battle going on. Every individual defines their own. Who gets to define what good? Everybody defines their own. Why on earth would I want to define my own good if I truly believe that God was good and whatever he said was good? I, I wouldn't want to do that. So the sign that I keep looking to sin to satisfy me in some way is a result of something deeper going on, which is, I don't really trust that God is good. 
I don't think he's trustworthy. And of course, those of us who are parents, we shudder at that. If we represented God to our children and yet were untrustworthy to them, that's the model we gave. Maybe no wonder they struggle with that. All right, here's your questions. Here's your assignments. Sometime in the next two weeks, here's a question. In what areas might you be hiding or covering up what you see is wrong or shameful in your life? Maybe some comes to mind right away. Oh, it's this one. If only people knew this. I, I'm, you know. I would encourage you to ask the Lord to open your eyes and ask a good friend to open your eyes. Hey, do you see me like hiding, covering up something in my life? Friends can be very useful, very uncomfortable, very risky that way. I think this would be in regard to areas in your life past sins that have happened to you. Are you covering up and hiding because of sin that happened to you? It wasn't even your fault, and yet as a result of sin, you're covering and hiding. What about past sins you committed? What about current sins that are way out of control? In what way might you be hiding, covering up? How might you be avoiding people or relationships because of the fear of being found out? These are all potential indicators, markers you can see in your life that may say, I'm hiding something. I'm not open with this. I'm not responding to God's call to come at all. Ask God to show you ways in which you're hiding from him and from others. Ask God to give you faith to trust him for the good in your life and to give you strength to come out of hiding so you can receive his love mainly through others. But you can't receive it if you're hiding because no matter if love is given to you or not, you will not be able to receive it. Basically, I'm asking you to do some plowing Uncover some things, perhaps that are hard. Get some help, get some input. And let's come back in two weeks and let's continue in Mark 10 to look at how Jesus addresses all too common question. So how am I doing? I'm afraid I'm not doing very well. What do I need to do about this? Besides Mark 10 and Genesis 3, I would encourage you to get some thoughts out of Romans 1 our Psalm 32 in Psalm 51. You know that phrase David says, against you, God, and only you have I sinned? The way this question is being phrased, all sin begins and has as its source and its highest ugliness when we say to God, I don't trust you. And just to give you an example, here's... Here's what I'm thinking, my conversation going on right now, just to tell you the rut we're in. I'll tell you what I'm thinking. I'm thinking, did Craig do okay? I am. Was I good enough? God, was I good? Did I study enough this week, God? I mean, I tried. Did, did, I could have done better. Couldn't. Do they think I'm good? That's what's going through my mind. What energizes me?
they're, they're not real subtle at Capital Community when you talk too long, okay? <laughs> they turn your microphone, which is okay, brothers. It's okay. All right. See, I'm going to have to deal with, I was not good enough time-wise, all right? Doug, Phyllis, all the rest of you. Okay, all right. What am I going to do with that one? Hey, come back in two weeks. <laughs> Father God, uh, we say, we, most of us here probably say you're good. We sing songs about that. We sing songs about your beauty. But yet, in so many areas of our life, our first response does not show a trust in you. In desperation, we cling to our own definitions and our own schemes and our hidings and our plans, our comparisons. Father, open our eyes. May we see truth. And as we see the truth inside of us, in things that we have hidden away and ways that we have turned our back on you and ways that we have said you are not good, may we then hear your voice calling us to come to you and back to your goodness. And may we do this for your namesake, for the glory of God Almighty. Amen.